Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, my fictitious brush with the law, the left is coming for Queen Victoria, and look at COVID misery in Canada and around the world. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, and I am Andrew Lawton, or better known now as Person of Interest, Andrew Lawton. Yes, I've had to append that prefix to my name for reasons that will become clear very shortly. And I should say, just as a bit of a preface to this story, that this isn't just about me, but I am going to inject myself into this and and use myself as an example of quite a significant problem that I think speaks volumes about where we are as a society right now and where, in general, Canada and Canadians are in the fight to reopen. Just as a bit of context here, we have seen in my province of Ontario a so-called reopen opening plan that doesn't actually have reopening contained in it. And these uh, really ridiculous and arbitrary delays from one stage to the next stage where I can't even get a haircut until July, which I don't know if you can see is kind of something I need before then. Not that the haircut is the biggest deal in my life, but haircuts have kind of been the barometer, if you will, of how open or closed a society is. And, and now you have some little crumbs of liberty that are being handed out like, oh, you know, five people can get together outside. Well, gee golly, meanwhile, we look overseas and see, you know, thousands of people in concert venues, nightclubs, sporting events. Well, in Canada, we just wait for our overlords to hand us the right to have a friend over on your back deck. And we get excited and celebrate that as though we've been given some gift like manna from the heavens above. Jeez. So bringing it back to this story now, I've talked on this program a number of times about Elmer, Ontario, which in a lot of respects became kind of a battleground for the lockdown fight. It started just over a year ago with the Church of God in Elmer, led by Pastor Henry Hildebrandt. This church was really on the cutting edge in in making sure that outdoor services were permitted, and they actually won that fight. The Ontario government relented. But since then, it has been all downhill. Last week, the Church of God was in court as the court tried to extend its right to lock the church out of its building. And one of the things that was interesting, Lisa Bildy, the lawyer representing Church of God, and we had her on the show to talk about some of the religious liberty fights just a few days ago, she had said that the government has kind of taken its fight against this church as an obsession. She said they are relentlessly pursuing this church, firing ticket after ticket after them, uh, without actually going after many other situations that are very similar. So she says it's become basically a state vendetta. And it's in that context that I become involved in this. Now, here's what's interesting. I was given a document, a package of documents that were disclosure documents filed to an individual I've never met. But it was someone connected to the Church of God and it made its way to me. The disclosure documents were police in Elmer, Ontario, giving their supposed evidence about why this individual person, who I'm not going to name because they have the right to go through the process and and fight this in court, but what police believed was their infraction. And it was a whole bunch of evidence from officer statements and stuff like that that police were putting towards this case about this one individual person. 
So how do I factor into this, you might ask? Well, you scroll down in the document and there is a witness statement put forward by one particular Elmer police officer who I have, to my knowledge, never met in my life. And this police officer testifies to being an officer in good standing with the Elmer police. She says that on Monday, January 25th, she was working a scheduled shift in Elmer. And during that shift, she was investigating a social media video of a church service that she says took place the day prior on the Sunday, January 24th, at the Church of God. This, by all accounts, appears to have been an outdoor service. There was a a flatbed trailer, there were sermons, there were speakers, and she says that she watched the video of this in its entirety. She describes all the things she said she saw, including at one point near the end, a bunch of people who were outside went inside, and the officer says she saw 100 persons seated side by side, not wearing masks, who began to sing joy to the world. And then she says this, From this investigation, I began to utilize open source media, police information, police intelligence, and anonymous public information to positively identify those in contravention. Now, when she says those in contravention, she's talking, of course, about the so-called Reopening Ontario Act and the limits that are placed, especially in January, on attendance of worship services and, and in general public gatherings. And she said that she has used all of these means, police intelligence and anonymous public information, open source media, I think that's social media, basically, and she's identified those who were in contravention of the order. And then there's a list. Now, you see that there are uh, blackouts beside the names. Now, those blackouts are from the police document, and I believe it's just dates of birth. That's what I've been able to glean. I have censored the names themselves because these people, I don't want to draw attention to whatever police are accusing them of. That's for them to fight. So I just want you to understand that the police ostensibly blacked out the stuff on the right. The stuff on the left, those are names which I've blurred out. Except for one that you can see here, and that is number 25. Look familiar? It's right here. Andrew Lawton, person of interest. Now, I don't think they're just saying that I'm an interesting person. Maybe they are. Maybe they just are big fans of the show. They think it's interesting and I have good things to say. But Andrew Lawton is a person of interest. Now, how on earth am I a person of interest in connection with a supposedly illegal church service at a church that I have never in my life attended. I've interviewed Pastor Henry Hildebrandt. I have never stepped foot on his church property. In fact, I haven't even been to Elmer, Ontario, the ground zero for this, in, if I am recalling correctly, about four years. Four years ago, I was in Elmer for a night emceeing an event. I have not been to Elmer since. But somehow, I'm a person of interest. I'm named as being found in contravention. Well, that sounds scary. There are 61 people named on this list. I was part of the initial round. They added a couple of other people after apparently further investigation. And then it says this at the bottom, which I find particularly interesting. Participants identified, so that's the list above, were charged in contravention of fail to comply with a continued order contrary to the reopening Ontario Act and provincial notices were created and attempted to be served. Part one summons were created for those identified as not residing within the Elmer geographical area. Now, I live in London, Ontario, not far from Elmer, but not in Elmer. So the way this is worded, there may have been a summons created for me that was never served on me. 
Now, I should be clear. I have never had anything served on me. I've never had a police officer talk to me about this. I, I've never had any interaction whatsoever. And when I saw my name on this list, initially I was going to reach out to the Elmer police and say, what gives? And I backed off because I realized it's, it's on them, not on me. If they want to attempt to pretend that I was at a service at a church I've never set foot on or around, then it's on them to come to me and make that assertion. But there's something quite cowardly in not serving me, in putting my name on this list, claiming in a document that presumably will be filed in court if it has not already been, that I am connected by virtue of a police officer claiming, a police officer claiming that I have been identified in contravention with something that I've never formally been accused of. Now, this means that I can't actually clear my name. Police are able to say you're a person of interest if you are of interest to them for whatever reason. And again, I, I like to think sometimes I have interesting things to say, but I'm actually quite a boring person, but that doesn't make for good police speak. So if police are naming me in this forum, they actually are not giving me an opportunity to clear my name and to respond to these allegations. And that's why I made sure we blurred out the names on the left, because for all I know, those people were as well included on this list by virtue of the creation of fiction, not because they were actually suspected of doing anything or actually uh, subject to evidence that they've done anything. Now, stuff like this is very difficult. I have been a sincere defender of police and still am by and large. When police stood up and said no to doing random spot checks of citizens when Ontario's government gave them the right to do that, I commended every single one of Ontario's municipal police departments, including Elmer, by the way, for standing up and saying, we are not going to do this. So I am prepared to defend and continue to defend individual police officers who put themselves in a tremendously risky situation, who become political punching bags, who are forced into situations in which they don't want to be by the state. But my patience wears quite thin when I am accused, and potentially dozens of others are accused, of something that simply never happened. And by the way, I must say in unequivocal terms and no uncertain terms, this is not me defending my right to be there. This is not me saying, well, yes, but that's an illegitimate law. I've talked about my issues with that law and with that regulation. I'm saying full stop, I was never there. And for anyone to claim that I am at all a person of interest in connection with this is an all out lie. Now, I have interviewed Pastor Henry Hildebrand. I spoke to him last April when his initial battle about drive-in services was taking place. I spoke to him again in November, which is, again, a couple of months before this thing that I was alleged to have attended. And I've never, never met the man in person. I've never met the man in person. I've met his son, but I've never met him. And when I met his son, it was years ago and in no connection with the Church of God's fight with the government and by extension, the government's fight with the Church of God. And the reason I share this with you is to explain that when Lisa Bildy, the lawyer for the Church of God, says in court that the state has, it seems like, an obsession with this particular church, I've seen that firsthand by looking at the fact that my name appears on a list that I can only describe as just a net cast so wide as to include anyone who might have at some point been interested. I mean, are they assuming that because I've interviewed Pastor Hildebrandt, I must have been there, so let's just include him anyway? That's the best thing that I can think of, 
Is there someone who looks like me that they found in video? In which case, I feel very bad for the person, not only if they look like me, uh, but also if they're being confused with me, because that is not a fate I would wish upon my worst enemy to uh, be confused by me, especially if this is how the Elmer police have decided to view me as a person of interest in this. And this is something that I don't even know. And I've talked to a couple of people about this. I don't even know if I have the ability to fight it, to clear my name, to get exonerated. The best that I could hope for is Elmer Police saying we were wrong. Or, in fact, we made it up. But I don't think that's going to happen. But there is, in fact, a standoff taking place between the government and between the Church of God. And I, and I don't mean that in some sort of violent Waco-esque standoff. I just mean that the government has very much decided to throw everything it has at this particular church, a couple of others as well, including the Trinity Bible Chapel in Waterloo, whose pastor, Jacob Rayom, uh, we spoke to a couple of weeks back. And they don't even get the chance to really fight their constitutional arguments until October. So a lot of the things that are happening to them, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars in fines, are going to continue between now and October. And this was something that came up in that court hearing that I wrote about for True North. You can check that out at tnc.news last week, where the lawyers for the attorney general were saying to the court, I mean, we, we need, we're running out of things we can do here. In fact, the judge said that. We're running out of things we can do. These people aren't complying. We can just add more and more fines. And ultimately, what happened to them was the attorney general had served a notice of appearance in court with Lisa Bildy of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms that morning with the court hearing that afternoon. So no time to prepare whatsoever. So Lisa had said, can you at least give us, uh, give me, you know, a week and a half on this. So they're going to be back in court on Monday, May 31st. And this is, again, because the government was trying to lay even more fines against them well, they're already fighting the existing fines. So, you know, this is where we're seeing this unfold and wonder whose interests are being served here. So I have no doubt that even when Ontario moves through this so-called reopening plan and people are allowed to assemble and allowed to have church services, the government is still going to continue to be targeting the people it's decided to vilify over the past 15 months. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Person of interest, Andrew Lawton, back in a moment. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I should say, I hope you all had a great Victoria Day weekend. I know it's like supposed to be the May 2-4 weekend as after, you know, a giant 24-pack of beer that you can enjoy with your friends. But uh, no one can enjoy anything with their friends now, and I don't drink beer. So Victoria Day weekend, it shall be until the day I die. As, which, I mean, I may not actually get my way on this, because not about the death thing, but about uh, it being called Victoria Day weekend in perpetuity. My uh, friend and colleague Candace Malcolm had a great piece about this. She said this may be the last Victoria Day weekend with the way things are going. Every now and then, I mean, you, you get all of these stories about the left trying to cancel John A. Macdonald and uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier and Sir Hector Louis Langevin and, and basically everyone, anyone and everyone they're trying to cancel. And then you, you kind of assume, I do anyway, naively, that some people are going to be immune from being canceled. I, I just didn't think the mob was going to go 
for Queen Victoria. I mean, if you want to look at it through a feminist lens, uh, she was a, a badass. This is a, a woman who for a time was the longest serving monarch who did tremendous things, presided over the British Empire in a Canadian context, the very first sovereign of a confederated Canada. And well, the mob is coming for her. Not just in Toronto, where we have the Toronto District School Board entertaining a proposal to get rid of her because of the racist legacy that apparently this woman, Queen Victoria, has. They want to get rid of Queen Victoria Public School, which has, by the way, been around since 1887 when Queen Victoria was the sovereign. I mean, this is a school that has a tremendous history in Toronto, in Canada. Queen Victoria was the sovereign. It is a public school, which means that her direct descendant, her, I think, great-great-granddaughter, Queen Elizabeth II, is actually the owner in right of the school. But you know what? We got a racist legacy afoot. We got to scrub Queen Victoria's name off of that building and replace it with something woke. We got to put a black indigenous person of color's name, which is fine. But why don't we put their names on new schools? Why do we have to strip off the names from old schools of people who have a significant role in Canadian history? And if we decide we are going to take Victoria's name off of things, well, why not the capital of BC? Victoria, British Columbia, the capital of BC. Actually, no, wait. They might even come after British Columbia at this point. What's that? Oh, no, they already have. Okay, BC politicians want to change the province's name and flag to reflect diverse society. Diverse is such a code word. It means that we hate everything historic and we want to just completely rip it to shreds. The flag of British Columbia is, of course, one that includes the Union Jack and also the crown to represent the British of British Columbia. Uh, the province itself was named after the Columbia River. And to bring it all full circle, Queen Victoria gave it the name British Columbia so as to avoid confusion with uh, Columbia as in Bogota, Columbia. And British Columbia, again, a very rich history in this country in Confederation. To be honest, I'm actually surprised that Victoria and BC have lasted until now. But this is from a group of politicians uh, with the Lower Mainland Local Government Association. They've adopted a resolution considering change of provincial name, coat of arms, and flags. They want everything gone. They want it just completely destroyed. And a lot of the woke mob types are not interested in building. They're only interested in destroying and leaving, in, leaving, quite frankly, a vacuum through which they've obliterated everything because it doesn't cut the mustard for 2021. But the only real sin here, I mean, no one is talking about what Queen Victoria has actually done wrong. The sin here, in their eyes, is simply that she was alive in a time before now. I mean, fast forward 150 years, and all of the people that are woke approved right now are going to be canceled for some other reason. You can guarantee it. It's just a shame we won't be around to actually see it. But here's the thing. This is why it's so important to actually dig our heels in and defend Canadian history which Justin Trudeau is not interested in doing. Here's a guy who stripped the name of the Langevin building off of Langevin building. Here's a guy who replaced it with the not particularly succinct 
Office of the Prime Minister and Privy Council, I think, because Sir Hector Louis Langevin, well, we don't get to pay respect to him anymore. Same reason his name was stripped off of the Langevin Bridge in Calgary. Or, sorry, they, I got to tell a story about this. I was guest hosting on a Calgary radio station years ago, and I had not lived in Calgary. I was doing it from from outside the province, but you don't want to draw attention to that. And I was talking as this debate was going on about the Langevin Bridge, the Langevin Bridge, because it is named after Sir Hector, was named after Sir Hector Louis Langevin. They've now changed it to, I believe, the Reconciliation Bridge. In any case, I think I got through like 10 minutes of this and I gave some just really fiery points about it. And then I had someone call in and be like, it's called Langevin, you Easterner. So the jig was up. They knew that I was just masquerading as an Albertan, but they call it Langevin or called it. Well, now they don't call it anything. But anyway, that's my my Langevin Langevin story for all of the confused Albertans right now. And yeah, Trudeau said that was gone. And this past weekend, he didn't actually honor Victoria Day, not a single statement on Victoria Day, not a tweet, not a statement, not even like wishing Canadians a happy long weekend. And why this is significant is because Victoria Day, which is uh, I pegged for Queen Victoria's birthday, is in Canada the birthday of the reigning sovereign officially. And I, I know it's confusing because the Queen's actual birthday is in April. In Britain, her official birthday is in June. In Canada, her official birthday is on Victoria Day. And Charles's birthday, when he's king... Anyway, story for another day. Uh, he is uh, going to have his birthday officially celebrated on Victoria Day in Canada. So not even like a happy birthday from Justin Trudeau to the head of state, which is very much in poor form, but unsurprising when now standing up for Queen Victoria and Canada's history means standing against the woke mob. And I should say, I'm not typically one for virtue signaling statements and tweets and all of that. I, I'm not, I typically, I don't care what politicians say, but the absence of it from a guy who will tweet and post about any day imaginable is noticeable. For example, on Tuesday, the day after Victoria Day, Justin Trudeau issued a statement commemorating Africa Day and another one commemorating the 75th anniversary of Jordan, which, okay, if that floats your boat, commemorate those. But it seems weird to have a 75th anniversary for Jordan message and not a happy Victoria Day and happy birthday, your majesty message. But that's just me. In any case, have to take a quick break here. We will be back to talk about COVID misery in just a couple of moments. Stay tuned. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. We have been talking for the last, what, 15 months now about the havoc that COVID has unleashed on societies around the world, on communities across Canada, certainly included in that. But missing from the discussion in a lot of cases has been the impact that the response to COVID has had on communities. We've talked about this on this show, but I think certainly in a lot of the public health dialogue, the effect on the economy, the effect on just individual livelihoods has not really been told. But there's been a fantastic project by the McDonald Laurier Institute called the COVID Misery Index, which doesn't mince words. It is misery. Let's not <laughs> let's not uh, deceive ourselves here. But they look at not just what COVID has done, but also what a lot of the government's responses to COVID have 
have done around the world, including in Canada. Uh, one of the contributors to this is a Memorial University of Newfoundland professor of health statistics and economics, Professor Richard Audis. Uh, professor, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Now, even, by the way, I must say your title, I really like in this, because a lot of the times we get people that are just focusing on the health and not the economics, whereas you've actually, through this, looked at both of these. Obviously, the disease has had an impact, but how governments have responded um, to the disease has kind of you know, brought differing levels of misery across different, uh, different provinces and different countries. And, and of course, the economic fallout. And you know, one thing that's been you know, pretty remarkable uh, about uh, COVID-19 has been obviously the, the, the huge effect it's had on the economy. The, the, it, now we sort of seem to be moving towards uh, a recovery, although the recovery is not, uh, not even. Um, you know, some provinces bouncing back more quickly than others. And, and then finally, um, you know, looking at, you know, at the, the public health responses, again, you know, the level, every time we go into lockdown, that makes us a little bit more miserable. Um, you know, the speed with which, you know, we can get out of uh, this situation through va- largely through vaccines or even aggressive testing patterns, again, you know, again, reduce the misery um, that's heaped upon us. So again, what we wanted to do was take a holistic look or as holistic a look as, as we could, uh, could do with the data that's available and actually see, you know, we, you know, where, of course, in this case, looking across Canadian provinces and seeing which has done, you know, which provinces have, have done reasonably well and which provinces have, you know, have been a bit more miserable or quite a bit more miserable in some cases. And I should say, this is not a truly global index. There are 15 countries, all developed nations that are on this list, which I think emphasizes the point that Canada is not exactly in a position to be proud of here. We have the chart up on the screen there. Canada, 11 of 15 for total misery ranked, a few notches below where the global average is situated on this. Do you find that there are one or two provinces that are really dragging Canada down? Or do you find even with the differentiation from one province to another, Canada is generally in that pretty consistently in that realm no there's actually been pretty big differences across provinces and and i think the way you experienced uh, covid19 is is pretty different if you live in alberta ontario or quebec who are the three we'll say most miserable provinces or experience the most misery um, as compared to atlantic canada um so in atlantic canada you know uh the the situation has been been quite different um, you know, case counts have been relatively low. There's been, you know, some returns to normalcy, um, again, with, with various incidents, you know, that, that are causing, you know, a return to, to lockdowns when, when necessary or when deemed necessary. And, and uh, so, you know, I, I do think that, you know, the, the differences, what you experienced was very different in Alberta. Um, compared to what you would have experienced in Prince Edward Island uh, or or uh, or Nova Scotia, and again, I think that you know that that you actually sort of look that you know the, the countries you know provinces like Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, you know, kind of look a lot more like Australia and New Zealand, um, who've done quite well uh, during the pandemic, you know, as compared to Ontario and Quebec, which you know kind of look more like the UK or you know, some of the Western European countries that that haven't done quite so well. Is disease misery an apples to apples comparison to COVID response misery? Because looking at just Canada and the U.S., for example, here, the U.S. has a disease misery on this index of more than double what Canada's is, but it has a COVID response uh, misery level that's a little over half of what Canada's is. A lot of people, if they were just looking at death rates, for example, would say that those two aren't even in the ballpark, but the U.S. is actually scoring a bit better overall than Canada. Yeah, and, and I think that I mean, and some of that narrative I think does come up from early in the pandemic, where clearly the U.S. was got it wrong, um, and you know was was very slow to respond. 
Um, but what, what, the, but certainly what the U.S. has done is, is has, has at least since then, although I, mean, I think the evidence is, is suggesting it might be slowing down a little bit, but absolutely knocked it out of the park when it comes to vaccines. I mean, they were they were one of the first countries to to approve vaccines. Um, they very aggressively rolled out vaccines, and of course, you know, in, in the U.S. And, and following the U.S. media that I as as I do, um, you know, they're very much looking at a, a, you know, a pretty normal summer um with you know with 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 you know restrictions being lifted um case counts you know dropping day over day uh you know death rates declining um so again i think you know that yeah it's been a, it's been a pretty miserable experience for the us for sure um but you know in, in over the last four or five months they've they've really have kind of gotten their act together and, and i think when we look at, at you know the, the sort of the total of what's occurred um you know it, the 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 covid's going to have a longer tail in canada because we're going to be longer getting you know getting people vaccinated and, uh, and certainly getting things back to normal from the get-go, Sweden became somewhat of a, a political football in this fight. It, it was held up, I think, by both sides as the example, uh, in one case, uh, of what we need to strive towards, and in the other case, uh, of what we need to ensure we never replicate. And it's interesting that now, looking at this uh, more than a year later, Sweden actually ranks pretty highly on this, uh, just one step below Australia. And I find that interesting because Australia w- was very well known for how severe a lot of its restrictions were as far as uh, quarantine. Uh, people were stranded abroad, even if they were Australian citizens, whereas Sweden was kind of open season in a lot of ways. Yet they both look very similar to each other. What accounts for that? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, the, the disease sort of manifests itself slightly different in different climates in different parts of the world. Um, I think, you know, again, the, the Swedish situation, although I think their response did change over time, I think their initial response, obviously, was to uh, a bit more of a, a sort of relaxed attitude, shall we say, towards, you know, locking down and things like that. Over time, uh, they have sort of changed their, uh, you know, their, their approach to it, and, and, and they have become a little bit more conventional uh, in terms of what, you know, what's gone on in other parts of the world. I, I do think that essentially, you know, that, that you know, I think particularly with the Swedes, um, you know, generally, I think, you know, even though they're, they haven't sort of locked them down, they've you know they've main, been able to do things like maintain social distancing you know mask wearing things like that all of which you know or most of which is voluntary um there or a lot of which is voluntary there again they, they just kind of got on with it and, and and took the restrictions um that were necessary i think in in other places um you know these things had to be mandated by law and that you know that, and that created some you know some different challenges and of course there's also even though the the the, the, the legal lockdowns in, in in some places you know have existed you know there's been lots of you know, instances of people sort of, you know, um, skirting the rules or, um, you know, not quite adhering to them. And of course, the disease doesn't, you know, doesn't really, it doesn't really care whether you sort of observe the rules or not. It just, you know, if it has an opportunity to transmit itself, it does. And, and again, so I think that there, you know, if we could have counted on everybody to sort of, you know, to do the right thing, um, I don't think we would have necessarily had to go into lockdowns the way that we did. But, uh, but again, I think that wasn't, you know, I think there's pretty big differences uh, from country to country on those, on those issues. When we look at the data, do they tend to show that you either have a, a really strong uh, disease misery level or a really strong economic and response misery level, or, or have there been some different balances we see there? Yeah, I mean, there certainly have, you know, certainly have been some different balances. You know, when we look across countries, you know, the level Norway, which comes out on top of our list, where, you know, where, where admittedly the, the disease count was lower than a lot of other countries, but not, you know, not radically dissimilar, but they had very little uh, economic impact. They were able to basically, well, they were able to use their, their tremendous sovereign wealth fund to kind of keep things going um, there. And, you know, in other cases, um, you know, that we, we saw, you know, countries where, you know, for instance, say here, I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually uh, in New Zealand. Uh, we've had very few cases, um, but actually the economic fallout has been, been still been pretty large. 
Um, again, the tourism industry largely shut down here, you know, pretty big, you know, massive amounts of public borrowing um, to go in place to largely to keep tourism uh, uh, operators um, kind of, well, in position or, or the people who work in them uh, in post uh, for an eventual return to tourism. So I think in, in some cases, you know, a country like say here, like in, uh, in New Zealand, where we've had a, a pretty massive, uh, you know, economic hit, but very little um, disease hit, suggests that, there, you know, there are some, um, you know, uh, imbalances in those things. Now, we've uh, certainly seen a lot of uh, discussion in Canada, rightfully so, about the very slow pace at which vaccines have been rolled out. And and of course, the four-month interval between the first dose and the second dose in Canada is going to be putting Canada at a tremendously, tremendously lagging level when it comes to the rest of the world and and getting their populations vaccinated. How much is a vaccine rollout affecting numbers? Because it it does seem like in Canada, there's actually been, I I don't know if I would say an uptick in, in death. But but an uptick in a, a death metric that you use called excess deaths. Yep. Well, a couple things uh, about that. I mean, number one, I mean, I think that the vaccines you know, seem to work um, and, and they seem to be very effective. And if you look at, you know, I think the UK is the best example of that. I mean, that was a country that was a complete uh, complete basket case. Um, and now, you know, things are very much getting back to normal. Fans are going yeah, back. Yeah, they've got to like five thousand people in nightclubs now. Well, exactly, and you know, and ten, you know, sending ten and fifteen thousand people to football matches and things like that. So again, you know, very much. You know, so the vaccines there. Of, you know, and have very much been the, the you know the path back to, to normalcy, and certainly that's what we're looking at in the U.S., where you look at the case counts, which you know day over day are you know a fraction of what they were a few months ago. So again, I think in, in that case, you know, the evidence is that the countries that were able to get vaccines uh, to people, you know, have been uh, pretty effective. Still, you know, jury's still out on what's going to happen, whether the sort of the the, the lengthier time delay. Uh, between first and second shot is, is going to make a big difference or not. Um, you know, so that's, that's what the UK did. And that's what, what a lot of Canadian provinces are, are doing as well. Whereas the US is, you know, has opted to try to get second shots into people kind of more, you know, a little bit more closely to the, uh, you know, to the scientific guidelines, which suggest you know three to four weeks should be is is the is 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 the appropriate duration um, between shots. So you know, I do think that that you know that, that this is something that is going to you know that is that that you know will have an effect over the longer term. And of course, until people get that second shot, they haven't got that full level of immunity. Um, so again, they're still at you know at an elevated um, level of risk. You know, so certainly the evidence suggests the first shot is valuable. Um, and useful, but you know you, you get better better benefit from from that second shot. So I think as, as soon as people can get those, the you know kind of the better we are, and the better off we are, and, and the sooner we'll get back to normal. From a longitudinal perspective, I have to ask you, Professor. I mean, you're an, an economist. How long do you think a lot of this damage is going to last? When we look specifically at the economic response, and and to some extent the COVID response misery level. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the economic impact is going to be felt for a very long time. I mean, you know, you look at the amount of money that uh, that governments have borrowed to kind of get through this, and 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 not suggesting it's necessarily the wrong thing to do. I, I often use the analogy that you know that if the roof blew off my house and I had to go get a payday loan to to get it fixed, well, that would be the right thing to do, but it doesn't doesn't change the misery involved with it. You know, I think you know governments were were quite right to you know to go out and spend money. Um, to you know, to keep you know, to keep people from going back to work, and 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 potentially to you know, to keep businesses that will be viable uh, in the future, um, you know, still going. But you know, the, the the amount of money that's being spent here is is almost that sort of at a World War II type level. I mean, it really is. Um, you know, a massive amount of expenditure that, you know, in Canada, we look at what, you know, the provincial governments, but then also what the federal government is, has taken on for debt. And it's going to be, you know, it'll be decades, you know, paying that debt off. And, and unless there is, you know, a terrific amount of economic growth that, you know, that, that is sustainable for the future, but I don't think that's as terribly likely. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, this is something that we're going to be paying off and, our, you know, it's likely our kids will be still paying off the, uh, you know, the, the, the interest on this one uh, sometime in the future.
Yeah, and I'd be interested to see the effect on the tax base. I mean, we know certainly a lot of high-income earners who have the flexibility of being able to work from home won't direct, weren't directly affected in the same way as others. But we know tons of businesses, tens of thousands of businesses in Canada have gone under. We've got some projections from organizations like the uh, Canadian Chamber of Commerce that are suggesting uh, tens of, of thousands of more of those. The effect that has on employment is is pretty straightforward. But to, to really get a sense of how how long we're going to be dealing with those repercussions is not really something we can answer yet, is it? No, I mean, although, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, we do see that, you know, the loss in economic activity and the amount of money borrowed. I mean, you know, we're looking at, you know, federal government taking on levels of debt kind of tenfold larger than, you know, you, know, you, you hear of, of, of budget deficits of 30 billion or, 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 you know, 25, 30 billion as being, you know, pretty high. And of course, this year, they're looking at, you know, hundreds of, you know, two or $300 billion. Uh, so again, you're know, taking on 10 years worth of debt in, in a single year. Um, you know, it's, it's going to take a long time to pay that off. And, uh, you know, and I think even the, you know, even the cleverest of economists can't really tell you what, what the economy is going to be doing 10 years from now. Um, but, you know, certainly, it, you know, it, 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 it's quite likely that, you know, there, there will be some hangover uh, in terms of debt repayment, you know, you know, well beyond the next 10 years. So, you know, it is something that's going to be that that part of it is going to be with us for a long time. And, and again, not to say it wasn't necessarily the right thing to do, but when the next crisis comes and, and the next crisis will come, um, you know, it does limit our capacity to, you know, to 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 use fiscal tools to, to try to, to, you know, to spend our way out of it. So whether it's a financial crisis or if it's a you know, climate change induced crisis, there, there's going to be something that's going to come along where governments are going to need to spend money and it's going to be very difficult um, to, you know, to, 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 to pay for that. Well, we've all been living the misery, so quantifying the misery seems like the most productive thing we can do in the midst of all of this. You can check out the COVID Misery Index for yourselves over at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Health statistician and economics professor Richard Otis from Memorial University of Newfoundland joins me now from New Zealand. Professor, thanks so much for your work on this and for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Really appreciate it. I got to say, I love the name, the COVID Misery Index. That's a load of what it is, misery. And you know what? I'm glad that unlike a lot of what we get from the uh, so-called public health advisors, this actually looks at the economic harm and the harm on individual lives, which very much need to be acknowledged. And as I said at the top of the segment, have been in so many respects missing from the discussion and missing from the narrative that we get from the leaders imposing a lot of these responsive measures. So my thanks to the McDonald Laurier Institute and Professor Audis for putting this out. We will be back in a couple days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.